One of the understood responsibilities of almost every leader is to help their organization perform. On this episode, how to lead top-line growth even if you're not on the sales team. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 299. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. And one of the things that almost every leader is thinking about, if they're not thinking about, they should be, is how to grow the organization. There's a lot of ways to grow organizations. One way, of course, is the dollars and cents way, the numbers, how we build revenue within organizations. We're going to be talking about that today a bunch. And the other way to grow the organization is through relationships. And dare I even say love. Yes, you hear me talk about the importance of relationships a lot on the show. Today's guest uh, is a huge proponent, not only of organizational growth, but of growing people. And I'm really glad to be able to introduce Tim Sanders to you today. Tim was an early stage member of Mark Cuban and Todd Wagner's Broadcast.com, which had the largest at the time opening day IPO in history. And after Yahoo acquired the company, Tim eventually rose to the position of Chief Solutions Officer at Yahoo and later the company's leadership coach. And he is the author of four books, including the New York Times bestselling book, Love is the Killer App, How to Win Business and Influence Friends. And he is here today to talk to us about that book, as well as to teach us how we can help our organizations grow with the lessons from his brand new book, Deal Storming, the secret weapon that can solve your toughest sales challenges. Tim, welcome to Coaching for Leaders. Glad to be with you, Dave. I am really excited to talk to you because I read Love is the Killer app back in 2003, right after it came out. And it is a book that has stayed on my bookshelf with easy access for now almost, what, it's been 15 years almost. Wow. And I love the philosophy you brought in this book, and I can't wait to to chat with you about it. And and I also want to chat with you about this new book, Deal Storming. And I've heard you talk about that Toy Story actually mm-hmm. inspired this book. Tell us more about that. So going back over a decade, I had a speaking engagement for the senior leadership team at Disney in Florida. And the other keynote speaker was Ed Catmull. Ed Catmull is a co-founder and president of Pixar Entertainment. And I was so excited about this because I've been a longtime fan of not just Pixar as an entertainment company and a story, but specifically the Toy Story franchise. You know, I got to say, Dave, it's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's right up there with the Ten Commandments and Pulp Fiction. <laughs> but I, I, <laughs> awesome. I really thought it was brilliant. I did a little bit of research before I met Ed that day. I, I came to understand that his uh, VP of creative, John Lasseter, had started that whole Toy Story journey by developing a little, and it was probably like a 10-second um, video. They did it with their own software and hardware. It's animated inside a computer. It was called Wall-E. And they played that video at a big trade show. It got everybody excited. It got the lead investor of Pixar, Steve Jobs, excited. So everybody collectively thought, let's make an entire movie in the box. First one in history. And Lasseter came up with this idea. So anyway, I was like so thrilled to talk to Ed about that. And so we're backstage before the keynotes. And I'm like, Ed, your guy, John, he's a genius. I mean, what a genius idea 
to, you know, first movie in history made in a computer entirely about a boy and his toys coming of age told from the toys point of view. What a great twist. And that the toys would be human um, as opposed to toys. And so Ed kind of looks at me funny and he says the idea was highly problematic from the start. Hmm. And I was like, really? And he goes, well, we had challenges at every step of the way. He said, making a full-length motion picture is a whole lot different than making one, you know, that's very, very short, right? Um, the rendering time could take 20 or 30 years alone for that at the time when we were working on, you know, to go, this is the 1990s, right? So he said, we had to solve that problem. And then we had a budget problem. We'd never, never seen anything like it with respect to how much it was going to cost to make and market it. And then we had casting problems. And then we had storytelling problems because that's not what we do as a company. In fact, he told me on Dark Friday, Black Friday, which was nine months in into production day after Thanksgiving, Disney, who is the distribution partner, they shut Toy Story down. They declared the script unlikable and the project problematic. And so what Catmull told me was this is where we had to spring into action and figure out how to save this movie. And that's when he created this thing called the Brain Trust. The Brain Trust was a collaboration team. Some people inside the company and then some very surprising people he brought in from outside the company like puppeteers and woodworkers and adult psychologists and pricing marketing experts, all, a bunch of very interesting people that he brought in because they needed to collaborate their way to get the movie back on track. And of course, they did get the movie back on track several months later. It went on to be a blockbuster. They've had three of them. So anyway, Catmull looks at me and says, Toy Story wasn't a brilliant idea. No idea is brilliant. It's usually an ugly baby upon arrival. He said Toy Story was a thousand problems solved. Mm. And that hit me, right? I mean, it hit me. It's like every big thing we try to do, whether it's closing the next big deal, closing the next big round, solving some product issue, it's not one big idea. It's a lot of little problems solved through collaboration and teamwork. And that's really what set me down the path for deal storming as a book. Yeah. And you talk in the book about this myth of the lone sales genius. And I think many organizations still probably look at sales in that way, of course. Um, and I'm curious, how has sales fundamentally changed in the last 10 to 15 years or have we just been doing it wrong all along? No, I mean, I think there was a time when we sold belly to belly, especially business to business, right? When we sold to one addressable decision maker, we sold a product that wasn't that complicated. We didn't have that much competition. Then it really was a pitch and catch game where we'd get that very extroverted, detail-oriented salesperson and he or she would bring home the bacon, right? And then it was a recruiting issue. But what's happened, Dave, is especially in business to business, over the last 10 to 15 years, the buying field has changed. You no longer sell to one decision maker. Corporate executive board who researches sex things says you sell to about six. Another research organization, IDC, says, and that number goes up 25% year over year. Why? Well, First of all, everything we sell now has so much technology and information laced into it. Now we have technology and information and information security decision makers. Companies are relying more than ever on procurement. The average manager on the front lines who's going to use whatever product you're selling, he or she feels much more empowered 
to use that product and have some say. So they want a seat at the table now too on whatever the solution is. So you now sell to a committee. But the catch here is that it's not a committee that you're going to walk into a room and sell like, you know, the movie Fame where you do a dance off. The majority of people that you have to influence, you will never meet. And this presents a dizzying array of creative challenges at every stage of the sale, right? And the two other quick things that have changed is that we've added a whole lot more technology and sophistication into every solution that we sell. And as a result, the sale becomes more complicated, becomes so much harder um, to create the urgency for the customer to dump the status quo. And then the last thing is just the rising tide of competition. As you have more and more competitors willing to do the same thing you do cheap or free, that presents even more hazard. So if you had to solve two or three problems to close a quality deal 15 years ago, I'm telling you today, a done deal is a hundred problems solved. And that's why I believe for leaders, the number one skill set, the number one competitive advantage is your ability and your team's ability to quickly solve challenges. Hmm. I have seen the exact same thing over the last 15 years in in the process of selling training programs, mm -hmm. what was a simple decision or a, like you said, one-to-one -one decision 15 years ago has become right. inevitably more complicated by all the things you mentioned. And yeah. one, of, one of the interesting things I noticed um, that you talk about is the importance these days of having what you call an insider champion. I was wondering mm -hmm. if you could tell us more about that, because I'm not sure that's a concept that a lot of organizations really appreciate. Well, either at a prospect or a current customer. There needs to be somebody inside that company that serves as your advocate. And their insider champions come in all flavors, right? Sometimes there's an insider champion that just likes you personally. Sometimes there's an insider champion that loves your company's brand. Sometimes there's an insider champion that's really bothered by the problem. So you coming along with a solution makes them a huge advocate, you know, for change. And then finally, sometimes the insider champion is a person inside a company who has taken it upon herself to be the champion of change. They teach other people about what's coming next. They disrupt the status quo whenever possible to keep the company on the edge. And they're very good about vetting the BS artists who come through the front door. What we've learned in our research is that, you know, they come in all shapes and sizes. The, the, the last one I mentioned is the most powerful inside champion. The first one I mentioned, the one that likes you personally, is the least powerful of the insider champions. But, but the idea here, Dave, is that you've got to have somebody on the inside that can help you understand how to navigate that committee of decision makers. you got to have somebody on the inside that cares enough about solving the problem that they can move people to action and simplify the complication for you by focusing everybody on the urgency of solving the problem. So, so I talk a lot about that in deal storming and in particular, you know, I give this piece of advice. So when you go into a company, let's say um, you're pitching for the first time your services. I'm just going to kind of make this up, Dave. You know, well, let's just say that you're going into pitch training, okay? But the training product's going to be delivered digitally. So you know what this means. You know there's a lot of people going to be around the table. There's not just the director of training at a company. There's somebody else in HR who's working with managers directly. There might be a few managers that care a lot about the solution. They want to be at the table. Then there's the technology lead who's running the learning management system, right? So that person cares a whole lot about it. And then they got an outside consultant that's doing their leadership programming and that person. So these are all the people inside 
this particular prospect that you've got to move. So you go in for your first time, you make your pitch, there's going to be somebody in the room who's just instantly sold on it, loves you, but there might be somebody else in the room who debates you a little bit. And they kind of push back a little bit at some of the weaker parts of your pitch because you kind of know your strong parts and your weak parts. And they're specifically pressing you to be more clear about the exact value proposition for their money, et cetera. Usually what we tend to do in those situations is we gravitate towards the friendly face and the fan. Mm -hmm. And we kind of like deal with the blocker for now, but try to scheme our way out of. Here's the reality. The smiling fan on a scale of one to ten is about a four in helping you defeat the status quo, your number one competitor. But that blocker who, they, they call it the skeptic in, in research, that blocker who's kind of pressing you for details, pushing you to be clear on your value proposition, they're the one that tells the other nine what to do. And everybody looks to them because this skeptic is the person that vets good versus great. This is the skeptic that drives change. If you're willing to put the time and effort in to be clear and engage the skeptic and show him or her respect, that person is a nine on a scale of one to 10 when it comes to driving change. Tim, what you just articulated about the skeptic, I have seen so many times now in the last 15 years, I have completely lost count. It mm -hmm. is, it's so true. It, and, and our tendency is a lot of times to go to the person that seems friendly and that likes us. And yet the, the skeptic is the one that often is going to be the person, if there's going to be someone who really does become that champion. And yep. I, the thing that I really like about that perspective too is, it, there's not just a team on one side. There's really a team on both sides. There's a team right. at the customer side. There's a team on your side. And I really yep. like that you're you're getting organizations to think about sales isn't just you know one person going after the deal. It's an entire organization going after the deal. Exactly. And I think that you know kind of bridging here, if, if you make collaboration your first response and not your last resort, you're going to deliver better after you make the sale. There's a piece of research I point out in the book from MHI Global, and they studied this thing called the world-class sales organization. And the world-class sales organization, they're beating their rivals by double digits in sales and closing ratios and all kinds of key metrics. And when they did the research on what they all had in common, get this, it wasn't product or service quality. What they all had in common is a culture of collaboration across departments in pursuit of big opportunities, usually at the beginning of the challenge stage. Um, and I believe this because in interviewing 200 or so um, leaders for this book, I talked to several who said, you're right. As a matter of fact, Mark Schmitz, who's at Success Factors, you know, Success Factors, he's their COO. He said, if you bring them in early enough, you can turn the police into the pep squad. Mm. He's talking about like the delivery team or the finance team that has to deal with pricing difficulties. You know, those kind of people, the ones we used to throw the work over the wall to. Or we bring them in at the last minute when everybody's ready to sign, but there's a problem. We kind of put a gun to their head. That That's not collaboration. That's cooperation. Collaboration is when you bring in the team that has a stake in the outcome and cares about the process. And you give them a voice early and you recognize that they have a different set of constraints. They have a different set of best practices and that they add a lot to the mix of creative problem solving. So I think that is what we have to make a shift to. If we're going to be more successful, not only in closing the deals, but delivering them later, because when you bring those folks in early, they're excited later because they they feel some ownership over the success. I think this is probably 
something that I, I know we have leaders who are listening, who are on the executive teams in the organization. In fact, I've got a couple of people in our academy. I'm thinking about this right now who are, are would definitely buy into this philosophy and yet are working in organizations where sales is seen as one person goes to do the job or maybe a couple mm-hmm. of people and they're not working very collaboratively mm-hmm. culturally. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering when you run into that situation in organizations, what have leaders done successfully to influence their organizations to think more collaboratively in the sales process? Well, culture is a conversation led by leaders, punctuated by storytelling and enforced by action about how we do things here successfully. So unfortunately, you just can't flip the switch and say, we're going to deal storm every time we get stuck. It's not going to work that quickly because you got to undo culture, right? But storytelling is such a cornerstone of a corporate culture. So 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 no story is more resonant than the war story of the big deal that got landed with a new way. So what I tell leaders right now is if you're interested in making this part of the fabric of your culture, go find a really big sales challenge right now. Go find a big client that you're at risk of losing that's coming up for renewal for whatever reason. Go find a quality deal that's stuck somewhere in the pipeline um, and it looks very complicated and I want you as an executive to create a team around that deal but your account executive will run those meetings and own execution. You will just be the sponsor but you will pull those knuckleheads together in the meeting and you're going to ask yourself who has a stake in the outcome, who cares about the process and who might be an expert about our problem And if you build that team and solve that problem and you do it a couple of times over the next year, it will change your culture. Here's the last thing I'd say. The best way to change culture in an organization is around talent management. One good hire, one good fire, and some really good onboarding, and you can really change the way people think. So as you hire your next sales executive, I want you to look for someone who has a track record of collaborating or teaming up with other people. So what I tell some of my clients is, here's a trick question you can use in the interview, okay? Ask the salesperson, um, ask them, say, tell me about a situation in your last job where you volunteered to help somebody outside of sales on an important project, and you volunteered, even though it had nothing to do with your quota, tell me why you did it, tell me what the result was, and what your role was in the project. This is a trick question. Any answer is a good answer. It's like when they ask you, like, what's the last book you've read? They don't care what it is. They just care that you're a reader. This question helps you understand if this person um, knows how to build a collaborative web. Because if he looks at you steely-eyed and said, I never did that, I was heads down crushing my numbers, you're sitting across the table from a lone wolf, right? And in today's world, the research, um, CEB really proved this, the lone wolf's not doing very well. The team player is doing better. The challenger is doing the best. The lone wolf is not successful because the complication eats him because it takes him too long to move through the process on his own. However, if that candidate looks at you and says, well, um, marketing was doing voice of the project. I had a relationship with one of the marketing leads from a previous job. He asked me to help. I said, sure. My role was to gather up different parts of Salesforce and deliver to them some real current account information. And it turned out that when we released voice of the customer, it made a huge impact on our collateral. 
and it helped us do better. That is a person you want to hire because he or she will assume that that conductor role when they come into their job and they'll understand that problem solving is about team building inside an organization and that you have to develop relationships long before you need them. So in my personal experience, when I was at Yahoo and then when I consulted with all these companies, I noticed that you can't build very good collaboration teams if you haven't already fed the favor economy. This is like, exactly why I wanted you to come on the show because it's, it, I think for a lot of leaders still, they may think about sales and like, okay, that's not what I do or it's the sales team. And really sales is everyone's job in the organization. It's, it's approaching it much more from a collaborative mindset and it's starting to ask those questions in interviews. It's starting to challenge the thinking and the storytelling and all the things you just mentioned, Tim, to get us as organizations looking at this much more collaboratively. That's right. And, and I think what we have to understand is that the ability to solve sales challenge is the ability to create new opportunities to serve, right? So we've kind of changed what we call customer service. We call that customer success, right? I think of sales as um, company success. So mm-hmm. everybody's in the sales challenge because they care about the outcome and have something to contribute to the process. So collaboration is a good idea, but I absolutely tell you, Dave, as a leader, you're going to have to bring all of your strength to get those multiple perspectives in the room from me to we. When one of the key concepts that you've taught leaders for years is the concept from your first book, Love is the Killer mm-hmm. App, on the Love Cat and the Love Cat philosophy. And we haven't, I don't know if we've used the word love in this conversation yet, but the conversation has been a lot about that. And so I'm wondering what can leaders and leader coaches today learn from the Love Cat philosophy? So Love is the Killer app basically says that the greatest power in the world is love. And it applies just as much at business as it does your personal life. It's just different in business. In business, when we love someone, that means that we are committed to promoting their success and, if possible, their satisfaction whether it's a customer or whether it's a colleague, right? So everything we do is about growing that person and exceeding their expectations. And that's what it means to show the love or to deliver work with love. I find that if you commit yourself to promote people's success, your success comes from that. You build an outstanding brand. You create the stronghold. I talk about the favor economy. That was what really helped me uh, catapult myself from account executive to CSO in like three years. Inside, inside a very fast-growing organization, I served, and by serving without expectations, I grew a lot internally in terms of my reputation and my ability um, not only to solve problems but to forge connections. But what I've learned since publishing the book as I travel around the world is that for a leader, the two most important things you need to do, you need to continuously learn and you need to spontaneously teach. Because the two are highly connected. You hear the phrase, readers are leaders. It's true. You become more empathetic. You fall in love much more deeply with your customers and your followers when you become a voracious reader. It changes and rewires your brain. And as you learn more, you become more generous with what you learn. That's what I mean by spontaneous teaching. I think leaders need to always have a mentee. And that may not be a person that reports to you. And if I've really changed anything in my, my mental point of view about knowledge sharing over the last 15 years, it's that 
we have to follow a very particular process as leaders so that we scale ourselves to the ability and we mentor the right people for the right reason. So Dave, I believe that we should mentor people that we see heroic qualities in, mm. not, not people that ask us to mentor them. Mentorship's not an HR program. It's a habit of highly effective leaders. And it goes all the way back to Greek mythology. It was popularized in Homer's Odyssey, but it's the idea that you see a hero going someplace, but just a little bit too fast. You have experience or knowledge that can help her make it to the next leg of her journey. And you engage that student and you become enthusiastic about her learning. It's not about being smarter than her. And most importantly, you empower her to give back to you because heroes can teach you something and heroes can keep you relevant as a leader. And I think that the learning teaching leader not only stays relevant throughout his or her career, they develop business superpowers through that process, let alone the loyalty that they generate uh, in the people that work with them. And I also believe we mentor our customers whenever possible, peer to peer. Tell me about knowledge sharing. Is it the same thing as mentorship in the context you were just describing? So, you know, the difference is knowledge sharing could just be a generosity, like, like of, of giving information to another person. So it's like, I'm talking to you and you say to me, you know, Tim, I'm really trying to figure out how my training programs can fit inside all these different LMSs. No two are the same. In my business, I hear that a lot. And I might know of something where I'd say, listen, have you heard about this solution? Or I might say, I read this article in HBR that talked about moving everything to video on this format. And so, so I'm just giving you information. I'm giving you information generously because in every conversation, I want to bring a gift. But I'm not fully engaged with you as a mentor. But if you said to me, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get to the next stage of our training program, right? So we're trying to move from a million dollars to five million, but we keep getting stuck with anything over 50,000. Then I might say, look, that's an area of specialty to me. Um, six figure and up deals is something I've been doing for 15 years, which is true. It's something that I spend all my life on. Let me mentor you on that. I want to get involved with you. I want to teach you the fine art of closing a six figure deal. I'm not going to teach you training because you already know that. I'm just going to help you with this one little leap. And that is more programmatic. So as a mentor, I've got to be able to step back and ask myself, what's it going to take to transfer my expertise, to transfer my perspective to the student? So a leader has to be, as I mentioned before, methodical and say, I think it's going to take four to six engagements. We're probably going to have four to six lunches. I'm going to send him stuff in the meantime. Um, that's the difference. Um, it's got a curriculum. It's got a sense of purpose. Uh, and as a result, because it's going to take a lot more time than a chance conversation, you're going to be more qualified in my eyes, but not qualified to pay me back, qualified to pay it forward, because that's the most important assumption you'll ever make. If you love people at work by giving them knowledge and supporting them, you have to just assume that they're paying it forward, because if you look to get something back for all of these efforts, you will burn out and you will stop. So the assumption is of the love cat, I'm giving, I'm giving, I'm loving, and I just hold it to be true in the world that this is going to make the world a better place. One of my pieces of advice, yeah, exactly, is that you're going to be a much happier leader if you assume others are operating under the best intentions mm. until thoroughly proven otherwise. Yeah. I mean, that's not just going to help you as a leader. It's going to help you in traffic. You know, oh, if you sure. can just assume... <laughs> 
because for the listeners who've not read Love is the Killer app, the idea is that the way that you show love and promote success in other people is you share your knowledge, you share your network of relationships, and you share your human compassion and empathy, right? So what we're saying here is that don't expect anything in return for that. You're doing it to promote their success. You're not doing it to trigger reciprocity. Why is that important? They know. Uh, the, the, the greatest gifts are given without strings. So when a person, like if you think about it, listeners, if you've had the greatest mentor in your life, could have been a teacher, could have been a boss, they never dangled in front of you a payback. They never tapped you on the shoulder three years later and said, what's in it for me? And it was that freedom of love that made you a better student, a better recipient, a more thoughtful networker, et cetera. So it's so important. But as I mentioned before, for so many leaders who don't think love is appropriate at work, it's their ego. They don't want to appear weak. They don't want to take an advantage of, and that's a big one. They don't want to help people that are going to go off and compete with them someday. They don't want to help people that are ungrateful. Somewhere along the way, I just stopped caring about that. And I started caring a lot more that I chose the right person and that I would see them take whatever gifts I gave them and make the world a better place. And I would continue to coach them to do that. And then sometimes people might come back and like if I shared my network with them and it helped them accomplish something, they might come back and say, I really want to do something for you, Tim. You helped me so much in my business. What can I pay you? And I always say the same thing, Dave. I say, I don't want you to pay me. I don't want this to be a job. I enjoy it. Mm. Real mentors do it as a gift. Real networkers do it as a hobby. People that share compassion at work do it because they're human beings in a world of high tech, no touch. So just let go and assume that all you're doing is building a better ecosystem when you follow this love cat way. And you've been teaching this for many, many years, Tim. And Across the world. You have. And, and when you started, there were more people out there that were a little bit more hesitant about using the word love. And I just want yeah. to thank you for being so courageous uh, as you were at at the time when the economy was struggling and all those things were happening to really send this message out. It's been helpful to me and I know it's been helpful to so many people in our audience too. I got to tell you, there was a book I read before I wrote Love is a Killer App when I was still kind of in gestation, uh, when I didn't know what I was going to call it or whatever. And it was uh, called uh, Like Shaking Hands with God is the name of the book. And it's just an interview or a conversation between Kurt Vonnegut and another author named Lee Stringer in a Brooklyn, in a Brooklyn a cafe. And Kurt Vonnegut said, you know, I don't know why we write books anymore. Nobody cares about reading. They just want to watch TV and play video games. He says, but let me tell you why I write books. Vonnegut said, I write books because I know there are people out there that desperately need to hear the following message. You are not alone. There's somebody else in the world that has the same dreams and the same values as you do. He said, that's why I write. And that's when I decided to fight for love to be in the title of my book and to be the center of my philosophy because I knew that there's a lot of people out there walking around going, I want to be successful. I don't want to be an a-hole. I don't know how to figure that out. And I wanted to show them the way. Tim, you've been a leader in so many capacities over your career. And as you teach too, of course, leaders are always learning and growing. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest leadership mistake you made along the way? And what did you learn from it? So I hired too many people. I assumed the tree would go straight to the sun. Why do I know that's a mistake? Because I had to let them all go. And it was the most painful experience in my business life. Mm. And when I talk to other leaders, I say, whatever you do, under hire and stretch your people to exceed their expectations, especially when times are going great. 
you don't have to scale payroll to scale your business. You need to scale your mind. So whatever you do, you know, don't grow your company as terms of full-time employees any more than you absolutely have to, because guess what? The tree does not grow straight to the sun. The business cycle is real. There will always be downturns. The downturns are always going to have an impact on your cash flow. And if you've grown too fast during the run-up, you will have to do this. And a bad hire or a layoff or whatever you want to call it, it hurts everyone. But I think a lot about the people who lose their jobs and what it means to their self-confidence, what it means to their life continuity, how it rolls downstream to their kids. I've read the research on the physiological impacts of being laid off and I, bringing compassion to work. Uh, that's my new motto. I want people to be able to do the work of two because they're creative and they're innovative and they know how to leverage technology. Um, I, I really think that's the most important lesson I've learned as a leader. And I was just with a buddy in, in, in Carlsbad, California, Brian Bethini, who owns a very famous real estate training company. And that's what he's been so cautious to do is to so carefully scale up that business with smart real estate and smart hiring decisions that when the next bottom comes around, Ain't nobody going to lose their job. Mm. Such good advice, Tim. Thank you so much for that. And in true to the Love Cat philosophy, you've made a ton available to our listening community. And uh, thank you in advance for that. And can you tell yeah. folks where to go uh, check out a bunch of the resources you've got from Deal Storming and Love is a Killer app? Because uh, I know a bunch of folks are going to want to go and check that out uh, here online uh, and now here in our conversation. Built the page just for your listeners. It's timsanders.com front slash CFL, timsanders.com, front slash CFL. Guess what that stands for? Ah, coaching for leaders. There you go, buddy. Excellent. And uh, what's there if people uh, go there? They're going to get a free chapter from um, Deal Storming. It's the one I mentioned before, uh, Genius is a Team Sport. They're going to get to read a full excerpt from Love is a Killer app. That was the one that ran in Fast Company. And they're going to get some ways to contact me through, say, LinkedIn or other social media platforms so they can stay in touch. They can even contact me directly from there if they have a question. I hope you all will do that. Uh, I've been following Tim's career over the last uh, 15 years since I read Love is a Killer app. He's been an inspiration to me. Tim, thank you so much for your wisdom. Thank you for the inspiration. And thanks for being a voice for love out in the business world. I so appreciate it a ton. Absolutely. My pleasure, man. A whole bunch of resources coming at you out of today's conversation. First and foremost, thank you so much, Tim, for offering a chapter of the book for download at the link he mentioned, timsanders.com slash CFL. It will be in this week's weekly leadership guide as well, but you can go there and download a chapter on sales teams from Deal Storming. I think it's a great way to get started and get into more detail after this conversation. While you're online, I'd also encourage you to activate your free Coaching for Leaders membership. If you haven't already, you can get there by going to coachingforleaders.com. Right on the homepage there, you can sign up for a free membership and you'll get access right away to my 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead. It is 10 minutes a day for 10 days, comes in your inbox, and will give you the most immediate practical actions to become a more effective leader. I've taken all of the interviews from the last five to six years. I've condensed it down to some of the key 10 lessons that I think will really help you to get started on the journey, especially if you've just started re listening to the show recently. Uh, that's a great starting point and gives you access to a whole bunch more, including the entire 
podcast library searchable by topic over the last six years. Go over to coachingforleaders.com in order to do that. Now, heads up, if you are in San Francisco or if you're in the San Francisco area, I would love to meet you in person on June 29th. I am going to be hosting a Coaching for Leaders listener meetup that evening, Thursday, June 29th, 2017. It is free. It is going to be in South San Francisco, and I'm going to be there personally hosting about a two-hour event. We're going to do some activities. We're going to have a Q&A session. We're going to have a lot of fun just getting listeners connected with each other in the San Francisco Bay Area. So if you are in San Francisco and would like to attend, I hope that you'll go over to this, this link, coachingforleaders.com slash San Francisco, and you'll find all the information that is there on the page as far as how to RSVP. We are limited to 30 spots with the location that we've got for the event. So again, coachingforleaders.com slash San Francisco. And if you happen to be in the Bay Area that week, uh, I'd love to meet you in person. So thanks in advance if you RSVP. Can't wait to connect with a whole bunch of you at the end of June. And one final call to action on this episode is that in the next uh, few months here, I'm going to be having Kwame Christian on the show. He is an expert on negotiation and conflict resolution. And we're looking for some situations that you're navigating right now on one of these three topics, how to persuade others, dealing with difficult people, or saying no, which is, of course, a skill set that a lot of us need as leaders. If you're dealing with something right now that's around one or more of those areas, go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback and send us as much as you can about the situation you're navigating. Uh, you can write in or you can record it by audio, mention that it's for this episode, and tell us what you're dealing with. And Kwame and I are going to select a few of the situations and then we're going to discuss on an upcoming episode some of the strategy and tactics that all of us can utilize to handle situations like that. So again, the three topic areas are how to persuade others, dealing with difficult people, and saying no. Just go over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback, uh, share uh, your feedback and your situation, and we will tackle it in an upcoming episode. So thanks in advance to Kwame for uh, helping us review those, and I'm really looking forward to, uh, to hearing what you're navigating right now so we can help out as much as possible. And it will be helpful to so many of us here in the listening audience. And a few related episodes to today's conversation with Tim Sanders. Way back on episode 84, I had on Daniel Pink. He was talking about his most recent book, To Sell is Human. One of the things Daniel and I talked about in that episode extensively is how sales and sales skills are becoming important skill sets for all of us at every level in the organization, regardless if you're part of the sales team or not. And if you're uh, if you're wondering about that, or if you're thinking that you're starting to need to do things that are more sales related, that is a really important conversation to listen to. It's a great compliment to today's conversation. So again, that's episode 84. I'd also encourage you to check out episode 215, How to Collaborate Across Organizations. I had Kirsten Foote on that episode from the University of Washington. She's a researcher who's looked at at the issue of human trafficking and how different organizations and nonprofits have collaborated together in order to partner and create value in ending and reducing this issue in our world. Uh, whether you uh, have an interest in the issue of human trafficking or not, I think the episode's worth listening to for you because we talked about a lot of the principles that leaders can use to work between and create collaboration between organizations. We talked B2B on this uh, conversation a lot today with Tim Sanders episode 215, also an important listen for you. And then finally, episode 294, Chris McChesney was on the uh, on the show not too long ago talking about how to actually move 
Numbers. And we talked about his very popular book, The Four Disciplines of Execution. And if you're trying to move numbers, as we were talking about in today's conversation, and you haven't yet listened to that episode, go check out episode 294. You can get to all the past episodes by going to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number. Next week is episode 300. And I've got something a little different planned for you. I think you'll like it. I'm not going to share much in advance except to say this. The show will air, but I'm not hosting it. So tune in next week for more on episode 300. And uh, by the way, on the feedback, if you have a question that's not related to one of those three topics, send it in for consideration on the next Q&A show. We're not going to be doing the Q&A show next week because we're doing episode 300. But normally the first Monday of every month, we're open for questions at coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. So send it in. Have a fabulous week and see you next week for episode 300. Take care.